Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast on the day before the federal election. You'll hear my interview with Conservative Party leader Andrew Scheer, also the president of Ipsos Polling with the most recent polling information. Daryl Bricker will have that for us. If you earn a lot of money, what's fair taxes? Let's say you're an NHL player earning $7 million a year. How much do you get to take home? We'll get that answer from an accountant who looks after the financial affairs of NHL players. And we'll find out as well about what the concerns are about Canada's manufacturers. Many of them are being invited to move to the United States. The election in Quebec, former PQ candidate Nino Calavecchio will join us. And I'll be speaking with Brian Peckford, who's the former Premier of Newfoundland, about the election campaign. We're joined by the Conservative Party of Canada leader, Andrew Scheer. Mr. Scheer said uh, said consistently that he expects there'll be a majority Conservative government. Do you still feel that way, Mr. Scheer? Well, I'm very optimistic. Uh, We have a great deal of momentum heading into this final weekend. We've run a fantastic, positive campaign outlining how we're going to make life more affordable for Canadians, get back to balanced budgets, lower taxes, and uh, we're very, very optimistic with the results for tomorrow. I have to get at this issue, this question, and you know that I'm going to ask you, so let's get at it. Give us something, please, on the story from the Globe and Mail that your party hired Warren Kinsella's organization to conduct, as the Globe writes, seek and destroy Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada exercise. You said that your party will not make comments on, quote, vendors that we may or may not have engaged with. You have to give me more than that. Well, uh, we, it is our, our general policy that we don't uh, make, those, uh, make comments on things like that. Those are internal party uh, matters. I can tell you that we comply with all of Elections Canada rules for uh, disclosure and uh, rules regarding uh, processes for for various things so uh, as has been in the, the case in the past we we don't make comment on these uh, types of things okay but you still expect mr trudeau to uh be very straightforward about what's been dogging him and particularly the blackface um issue which i i think he needs to answer but there are many canadians who believe that uh, you should be answering this and it may affect how they vote tomorrow well, you know, we expect Justin Trudeau to be forthcoming and honest and answer questions, especially as it relates to his time as Prime Minister and things that are under the control of his government. That's why we have been fighting very hard for him to come clean on the SNC-Lavalin scandal. That's why we've been frustrated at uh, his uh, shutting down of parliamentary investigations. Uh, we're not talking about uh, you know things the Liberal Party may have done. We're talking about things the government of Canada uh, has done or may have done with him as Prime Minister. So I, I do 
believe that uh, when it comes to trust, the Canadians can see that uh, Justin Trudeau has said things that he knows not to be true. He lied to Canadians about his role in the SNC-Lavalin scandal, and uh, they have no reason to believe him when he makes campaign promises this time uh, because he's broken so many of his promises from last time, like balancing the budget in 2019. Okay. I'm not going to pursue this issue uh, of the... Uh Warren Kinsella investigation on behalf of the Conservative Party any further because we only have a few minutes with you. You say you, uh, again, you expect a majority Conservative government to be elected tomorrow. It could happen. But predictions are a minority government uh, will be the case. And Jagmeet Singh said on this program a week ago that the NDP will not work with the Conservative Party to form a coalition. The Greens have said essentially the same. So you may win more seats than the Liberals and yet find yourself and the Conservative Party in opposition. What then, and then part B to this, and we talked about this yesterday with several guests, what would you expect the fallout in Western Canada to be? Well, what I've said is that we're asking for a Conservative majority precisely for the reasons that you outlined, that all the other parties, the NDP and Liberals, will work together to run massive deficits and raise taxes to pay for it. And that type of coalition would be very costly, and Canadians would not be able to afford that. And so we are saying to Canadians, if you want the carbon tax scrapped, if you want a return to balanced budgets over a responsible period of time, if you want to stop the practice of borrowing billions and billions and making future taxpayers pay all that back with interest, or even current taxpayers after the election, uh, then you need to vote Conservative to stop that NDP Liberal coalition. Uh, I'm not going to kind of try to weigh in on what may or may not happen on the 22nd. Uh, we've still got uh, a little less than a day before people start voting tomorrow. And our message is the choice is crystal clear between a conservative government that will make life more affordable, lower taxes, and uh, increase, you know, keep our economy growing, and a liberal NDP coalition that will run massive deficits and raise taxes to pay for them. That's fair. Um, it's a funny world, isn't it, where if you say you're going to balance the budget, you're the one who's being attacked for saying that? <laughs> when, when in 2015, the, the, the man who occupied the prime minister's office for the last four years said budgets will balance themselves, and... We would have a balanced budget in 2019. Well, exactly. It is the height of hypocrisy. I mean, when you think about it, Justin Trudeau ran on a platform last election of balancing the budget in four years. Uh, he's obviously blew past that promise. But uh, for him in 2015, running on a balanced budget pledge is fine. But for us, when we do it in 2019, uh, he starts spreading fear and misinformation. And it's just another example of the hypocrisy uh, that has really defined his legacy as a prime minister. And, uh, and that's why we're saying to Canadians, look, we can avoid the, the damage that was done in Ontario under Kathleen Wynne and Delta McGuinty. We can start to control the rate of growth in government spending. We can eliminate uh, corporate welfare and foreign aid to countries that don't need it. We can bring that money back home to balance the budget and lower taxes. Uh, Canadians know that, that if governments are allowed to run deficits of you know, $20, $30 billion for years and years and years, that leads to higher taxes, just like night follows day. And it also leads to cuts to important social programs as well. We've already seen that with the Liberals uh, changing the way uh, men and women in the armed forces receive medical care in this country and the elimination of popular tax credits. So that's a choice for Canadians tomorrow, and I'm asking for their vote, vote Conservative, so we can get back to balanced budgets and keep taxes low. Okay, we have a few minutes more with you, so let me go through some issues and ask you for quick answers. Healthcare. What is your most fundamental commitment as far as healthcare is concerned? Keeping in mind, and we spoke yesterday with the president of the Canadian Medical Association, that five million Canadians have no primary care physician. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, 
finding family doctors is an increasing challenge for many people in, in, in all different parts of Canada. Uh, our fundamental commitment is that we will keep increasing the federal transfers to the provinces by at least 3%. That is the current formula. We'll protect those increases. We have also uh, committed to establishing a fund to help provinces purchase new equipment like MRI uh, equipment and, and CT scans to help lower wait times as well. As it relates to doctor shortages, we are committed to uh, speeding up the, the types of things that would allow people to come from around the world to Canada to practice medicine, and a lot, as well as recognizing foreign credentials to help facilitate that. That's a great idea. That has not happened for too many years. Military veterans, Mr. Shear, there have been uh, there's been very little said, and commitments made to military veterans during this election campaign. Well, I made a, uh, an announcement uh, on PEI specifically about re- reducing the backlog, eliminating the backlog for veteran services, ensuring that they get the, the benefits that they're entitled to, and breaking down the silos between government departments. Do you know that often of, uh, a soldier can get discharged from the military for a medical reason? They get an assessment by the Department of National Defense. They then go to Veterans Affairs to start receiving benefits, and Veterans Affairs makes them get an exact often makes them get uh, another medical assessment uh, often veterans have to prove that they still have permanent injuries like hearing loss or even amputations uh, there are so many bureaucratic issues within the department of veterans affairs that we're committed to eliminating so that at the end of the day the veterans the, the, the department works for the veterans and actually gets them the services that they yeah have. you know uh, we've, we've heard this uh, repeatedly from political parties running for office and then at the next time of their election the veterans are no better off so um, we're going to hold you to that if you're elected. Yeah, you, sh- you should, and veterans will, and, and I, I am will. committed to doing this. And uh, I'd be happy to come back on your show and, and defend the record after we've had a chance to start to fix the problem. Yeah, I have to uh, remind everybody that you've been very good about coming on this program, and you haven't always had an easy ride when you've been on the show, but you haven't, uh, you haven't stayed away, and I appreciate that, and I think our listeners appreciate uh, Irregular border crossers, speak to that, please. Well, we also made an announcement whereby we are saying that we would start the process to renegotiate the third safe the safe third country agreement. We don't believe it's appropriate. We don't believe it's fair for people to cross into Canada illegally, jumping the line and skipping the queue from uh, ahead of people who are facing real persecution, civil war, natural disasters, and things like that. Upstate New York is not a place you need to flee from. Uh, it's it makes sense that people want to come to Canada, but we're asking them to come through the front door. Uh, so we will work towards establishing the same principles that exist at official border crossings, where if you come into Canada from the United States, uh, you are sent, you are, you, you are told to make your refugee claim in the safe, the first safe country that you reach, and we're going to extend that principle uh, across the border. Okay, climate and carbon tax. Carbon tax is going to be gone. How fast? Uh, well, if, uh, if we receive the mandate to do it, it will be uh, eliminated before January 1st. Uh, we've committed to having an economic action, uh, sorry, uh, a fiscal update, uh, the get-ahead fiscal update, as soon as Parliament returns, and that will include scrapping the carbon tax as well as taking the GST off of home energy bills. All right, now I have to ask you this question about equalization. And you know that uh, in the province of Alberta, Premier Kenny uh, is looking at this whole issue. And uh, there's talk about a, a really a need for a referendum in Alberta on equalization. What are your plans and your thoughts on that? Now, tie that into the pipeline issue because you have the premier of Quebec saying he doesn't want dirty Alberta oil, uh, which means, you know, no, no, no new pipelines, doesn't want the oil, but he wants the money. 
the $13 billion. How do you address that? Well, I believe in respecting provincial jurisdiction, but I also believe in respecting federal jurisdiction. And uh, I've said before that uh, when projects are in the national interest, it's imperative that the government, the federal government, uh, gets them built. I, I believe that the National Energy Corridor that I'm talking about uh, can do that, can speak to the concerns of First Nations, of uh, provincial governments, of uh, environmental issues, get all those types of questions settled ahead of time so that we can get these big projects built again. Uh, I believe that once we have a government that uh, believes in our energy sector, uh, as we do, you know, Justin Trudeau travels around apologizing for our oil and gas sector. Uh, I will be a champion for Canadian oil and gas. I will uh, create the climate where the private sector can get pipelines built again, get Western Canadian energy to Eastern Canadian markets so we can get off of foreign oil, and we'll see that economic growth return to Alberta and Saskatchewan. I, I, I live in Saskatchewan. I, I, I'm home, going home to Regina tomorrow to vote. And I know so many friends and neighbors who have been impacted by this downturn in the energy sector. And there's so much frustration that we continue to import uh, oil and gas from the United States, from Saudi Arabia, from Algeria. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm going to work uh, to, uh, to to address. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, this happens every day in Eastern Canada. Uh, do you want to add anything to this interview? I've, I've already gone over the 10 minutes you agreed to. Do you want to, do you want to add anything that I, I haven't asked you? Well, I'll just uh, once again, as voters uh, make up their mind for tomorrow, for those who have not yet made up their mind, it is a very crystal clear choice tomorrow between a coalition that Canadians cannot afford, an NDP uh, party calling the shots with a Liberal Party spokesperson. Uh, That is one choice. Massive deficits, big taxes to pay for it. On the other, a Conservative government that will lower taxes, keep making life more affordable, return to balanced budgets, and represent Canada with strength on the world stage. All right. We have you on the record. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for being available to us uh, throughout the campaign. Thank you very much. And we'll see what happens tomorrow. We'll talk soon after the election. All right. Thank you, Mr. Shear. Andrew Shear, the leader of the Conservative Party. I I thought I owed him that uh, question. Is there anything you want to add? Because he has not avoided us, and he hasn't had easy rides on this program. He's had some uh, uh, significantly challenging interviews. And uh, he's never refused to come back. So I appreciate that. Roy Green Show on the day before the federal election. And uh, I imagine there's still a significant percentage of people out there deciding, still deciding how they're going to vote. In fact, Daryl Bricker told us yesterday, the uh, president and CEO of Ipsos Public uh, Research, that um, 10% of the uh, Canadian population is not yet Sure. How are you going to vote? And significant numbers of people will make up their minds as they're standing there with the uh, pencil in their hand and a series of names in front of them and deciding, well, which one should I check off here? There's brand new polling uh, that is being released like just now, just over the last few minutes uh, from Ipsos for Global News. And so on the final day of the campaign, we have a very close election and a nation that is divided. And Daryl Bricker is back with us on the show today. Daryl, thank you for the time today. And give us a, a perspective, a snapshot of what the numbers look like today. Well, so we have the uh, Conservatives at 33, we have the Liberals at 31, and we have the NDP at 18. Uh, but the uh, national numbers don't really tell the story because Canada's Canadian elections aren't really national elections. They're a series of regional elections. Uh, different things are happening in different places. And when you take a look at it, even though the Liberals are currently trailing the Conservatives, because they're doing reasonably well in Quebec and doing reasonably well in Ontario, the chance that they could squeak this out in the end is definitely there. 
but it's so close right now, and there are so many very tight races at the individual riding level that um, it, it's, it's very difficult to say at the moment who has the edge. So when you say they could squeak it out uh, at the end, you, are you saying there could be a there's an outside chance of a conservative majority? Is that what I'm hearing? No, uh, there's only really one chance that we're seeing in our polling right now, and that is for some form of a minority government. Okay, but it's difficult to say which government would win the mo- or which party would win the most seats. Depending on various types of scenarios uh, in terms of turnout, uh, we can see the Liberals or Conservatives being in the lead on that. But at the moment, uh, really too close to call. It's actually, quote the closest I've ever seen. You know, yeah, I, I was I was going to talk with Alex Pearson uh, in the last hour, um, our Global Ontario uh, talk show host, and we were both saying we we have no idea how to call this, and apparently, so not, not, neither does the rest of the country. No, and we really don't. I mean, so in, in Ontario, for example, we're seeing that the the Liberals have about a four point lead overall, which you know it looks pretty reasonable. I mean, you, you're doing okay, but it looks like. Uh, quite a difference from what they had the last election in 2015 when they had a 10-point lead in the province of Ontario. So they're down quite a bit from where they were. But when you take a look at the 905, they've got a bit of a lead in the 905. And you take a look at the 416, they've got a bit of a lead there. The likelihood is they're going to lose states in both places. So the question is, how many are they they going to lose? So uh, it's, it's tight like that as you go around the country until you get to the prairies in Alberta. And that place is uh, the only place that has a really clear lead uh, for anybody, and that's the Conservatives are well ahead. So, um, for example, it looks like the, the uh, with the exception of maybe one or two seats in Alberta, the Conservatives are going to win every seat. Saskatchewan, it looks like they're going to win every seat in Saskatchewan. And in, but Manitoba, Winnipeg, it's a bit more competitive. So, but it's the only place in the country where anybody really has a very serious clear lead. You know, this brings me back to the question, Daryl, that I asked you yesterday, and I'd like to revisit that, particularly given these numbers that we're seeing now, the new numbers. And that was, if there is a coalition minority government uh, that is led by the liberals, but the conservatives end up with more seats than the liberals in the parliamentary seat count, what's the reaction going to be in the prairie provinces? And I believe you used the word wild. Yeah, I think it is going to be wild, and it's because the uh, the Prairie Provinces would have voted completely different from uh, particularly Central Canada. So Conservatives, for example, in Quebec are going to be hard-pressed to win a handful of seats. And in Ontario, they're going to do better than they did in the last election, but the likelihood is that the Liberals are going to win more, more seats than the Conservatives in Ontario. So the Liberal government will basically be created as a result of what happens nowhere in, in Western Canada, with the possible exception of British Columbia, where they've got a, a few seats that they're, uh, they're likely to win. So if you're in Western Canadian, you say, this doesn't have any resemblance to my reality. Um, is this a national unity election? Uh, the result might be a national unity election, but it really just shows how different uh, differently the reaction is to the Trudeau Liberals in particular. So if you look at biggest change that's happened in this election campaign is is the resuscitation of the Bloc Québécois in the province of Quebec. So they, they could, in, in some of the models that I've seen, they could win more seats than the Liberals in the province of Quebec. It's close. The Liberals might win more. The Bloc Québécois might win more. But we haven't seen them with this level of presence in the House of Commons since 1993. Uh, and, and in Western Canada, it's kind of like 1993 again, where it's like the Reform Party now represented in the Conservative Party, is really, really strong. And in central Canada, 
uh, what we see is, particularly in the province of Ontario, the Liberals still having some uh, some dominance. So different parts of the countries, country voting in different ways, no national reconciliation government, really. You know, when you mentioned 1993, I have an instant flashback to what happened. And we saw the Conservatives go from, progressive Conservatives at the time, go from a majority government, a strong majority with Brian Mulroney, to two seats. Uh, That's true. Right? Two seats under Kim Campbell, and the and the only MPs they had were Jean Charest and Elsie Wayne. That is correct. Nobody's going to go through that kind of a change this time around. Uh, but what we're going to see in the House of Commons is the Bloc Québécois again. We're going to see the NDP, you know, not doing as well as it did under Jack Layton, but not going away by any stretch. And we're going to see the Liberals and Conservatives very, very close. So unless uh, the polling is wrong, and sometimes the polling is wrong, it's very hard to predict turnout, uh, we're talking about very small differences between the major parties and very tight races in a whole series of ridings across the country. And so what the outcome is going to be, I'm going to be watching on Monday night on Global, just like I'm sure you're going to be watching and, and reporting on uh, on, uh, on your station uh this thing blow by blow, because I don't think anybody right now can say with any certainty what's going to happen. We're going to have to wait for British Columbia, perhaps, right? We might even be waiting for Vancouver Island. No kidding. Well, I suppose that way, in a way, that's a good thing. Well, you know, for Western Canadians who feel that sometimes the election is over yeah. before they ever get to have a say, well, they'll definitely have a say this time, but they might not like what the results of the election is going to be. So is there any potential scenario at the end of Monday night or early Tuesday morning or whenever we have some sort of reasonable sense of what the seat count is going to be, uh, is there any scenario that is going to unify the country or will people who are frustrated now simply continue to be frustrated at the level they are or even more so? No, I think that there is really at the present time no national government in which everybody is going to be happy. If the Liberals manage to squeak out uh, a plurality of seats and are able to get together with uh, uh, the, the NDP, for example, which would be their preference uh, based on what, everything that we're hearing, or maybe they have to do something that involves uh, some sort of uh, a, a arrangement with the Bloc Québécois, that's going to very, very much upset people, in, in particularly on the prairies of the country. If the Conservatives are able to put something together, the people in um, places like downtown Toronto are not going to be very happy, but especially in the province of Quebec aren't going to be very happy because uh, only a handful of uh, Conservatives are going to survive in the, uh, in the province of Quebec. So uh, however we come out of this election, uh, the unity question will be back on the table. Well, you know, I, I, one question that's kind of been in, in my mind for the last five and a half weeks of the campaign, Daryl, as it's sort of bounced back and forth, has been this one. Was there ever an opportunity for this election campaign to, uh, to reach tomorrow and uh, reach a conclusion that would be essentially acceptable to to the country. Did it, does this campaign ever have the opportunity to do that, or were, were the divisions so great when it began that the campaign was just not going to be able to fix it? Well, no, it really it looked very close from the very beginning. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting in, in, in the polling, Roy, is that there really hasn't been a big change other than the Bloc Québécois coming on strong. So even the NDP, who you know are obviously up a little bit, we had them at the start of the campaign around 15. Our polling right now is showing them around 18. So like a three-point change, not huge. The big movement has been the Bloc Québécois that could potentially win more seats now in Quebec than the uh, Liberal Party. No kidding. Win. That's the big change. 
Daryl, thank you so much for the time uh, yesterday and uh, today. Um, Ipsos Public Affairs President and CEO. This is fascinating uh, information, and it'll be very interesting. I'm sure it's going to be very interesting information for people who are considering how they're going to vote tomorrow. And a nervous night for pollsters. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks, Daryl. Good luck. Thanks a lot. Great talking to you. Daryl Bricker, the President and CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs, and that's the most recent polling just out over the last few minutes uh, for Global News, Ipsos poll for global news final day of the campaign and we have a divided nation very divided okay so let's say let's talk about how uh, much money the rich pay all right fairness and taxation and pay your fair share stuff so you're an nhl hockey player and you're earning between five and seven million dollars so how much of that money stays with various parts of government, and how much of that money actually goes home in your genes? Uh, joining us is Elena Hansen, owner and director of Hansen Cross-Border Tax, uh, and uh, her clients include several NHL players who are making in that seven, five to $7 million range salary. Elena, thank you very much uh, for taking the time, and, and, and let's talk about what happens, in fact, to a player who is in that salary range. So if I can, in the five or so minutes we have, if we take a Canadian player who is playing in the United States, being paid in American dollars, and is earning, let's say, the $5 million, what happens? Hi, Roy. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. And uh, yes, if we have a Canadian player playing on the U.S. team, um, you need to you need to raise a question whether that Canadian is a Canadian resident or U.S. resident. Let's say that our Canadian moved to the States and made the U.S. his home. So after paying U.S. federal and uh, state income tax taxes, you probably um, he probably will keep in his pocket about forty-four uh, percent. Twenty-four. 44. That's a former Canadian who is now U.S. resident and playing on a U.S. team. Okay, so hold on. Did you say 34 or 24? 44 percent. 34 percent. All right. So they're paying 66 percent in tax. That is, uh, no, they are paying 44 percent in tax. 66 percent is left to spend. Okay. All right. So what? how does it break down? Uh, for this for this player, a uh, Canadian player playing, say, for the New York Rangers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, well, it, you know, U.S. tax system is quite complicated, right? We we have a layer of federal taxation, plus we have a layer of state taxes. And I'm only focusing on income taxes. I'm disregarding social security taxes or consumption taxes. So, um, yeah, so uh, the federal top rate is about 37%, and then the federal, federal uh, and then state taxes... Um, so it ends up being about 44%. Okay, so what I have here is an explanation that was sent to me by uh, someone in, uh, in in your business who knows you, actually. The hockey player gets to keep only 28% of his net income after paying over $3.4 million U.S. in federal and Ontario taxes, tax rate of 53%, while the other person, this is the average person who's earning fifty grand, can keep up to 70% of their net income. That is correct. That's what's going to happen on the flip side. That's when we're dealing with a Canadian, let's say, Ontario resident who is playing for a Canadian employer. Maple Leaf, for instance. So you have a Toronto boy who's playing for the, uh, for the Toronto Maple Leafs, 
And that player is going to be paying significantly more then than the American counterpart. That's correct. That's what's going to happen. Um, so, I see. I was under the understanding that they were they were leaving a lot more and uh, paying a lot more in taxes than than it appears they are. But um, well, in Canada, remember, in Ontario, our top bracket is fifty three percent, and that's an integrated federal and provincial rate. Right. Okay. Then we also um, our NHL player will have to put uh, about. You know, 15.5% from the top line to the escrow account, and that's that's going to go towards the league, uh, plus agency fees. Some of them may be refundable, but, you know, once you crunch all the numbers, that's uh, you're going to end up a bit, with a bit 28%. So after refund, you're probably going to end up with about 36%. That, you're, that goes into your pocket. That goes into your pocket to enjoy, right? Okay, so the player the, the player reports the income and pays tax to CRA, Canada Revenue Agency, the mm-hmm. IRS, Internal Revenue Service in the United States. Then they pay tax uh, at the state level, and, and in some municipalities, they also pay municipal tax because they're playing hockey in those municipalities. Correct, they do. And this is just more of an administrative burden, right? Because most of those taxes cannot be eligible for a credit in Canada. So the hockey players are not double taxed. They're paying the greater of the two. And the greater of the two tends to be Canadian side. So you're making all this money, but you're not really making all this money. Not really. And, you know, and this goes to your argument, whether rich uh, are taxed enough. Because you, you you mentioned that you have a comparison with a person who is making 50000 Right. And if you, again, if you're an Ontario resident making employment income of 50000 and that's your only income with no deductions, your tax is about 8000 which is 16%. Right. So you have to keep, you know, 84% to enjoy. I mean, granted, you know, the top lines are very different. Fifty thousand is very different from six and a half million. Of course, right? And yeah. um, you know, whatever's left, uh, forty-two thousand is very different than almost two million left for the NHL player. But we all work hard, right? And we all want to enjoy our hard work, of course, money, hard earned money. Hey, look, if somebody's going to, you know, offer you a contract with a seasonal <laughs> salary of five million dollars, you don't want to be leaving three quarters of it on the table for various. Government agencies. Elena, I have to run, but I thank you very much for the time. It was great talking to you. Thank you, Roy. Always a pleasure. Take care. Hanson Cross Border Tax, and that's Elena Hanson. She's the founder and director. So, a whole lot of money, a uh, whole passel of money, the majority of the money that uh, these players supposedly earn go to various jurisdictions like the IRS, CRA, the uh, state governments. The municipal governments, they're all, it's kind of like a shakedown. We spoke last weekend with uh, Jocelyn Bamford, the founder and president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. And uh, the mantra from the left of the political spectrum has been the super rich must pay their fair share of taxes. Well, the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada is comprised of small to medium-sized businesses, which are major employers across this nation. They're heavily taxed, heavily regulated, and, uh, yeah, they, uh, they, their businesses and their operations may be valued at more than $20 million, 
That has a lot to do with investment in their companies. And if you start to raise their taxes and make their lives more onerous, you have to remember, as we've been told by the coalition, there are constant offers being delivered to businesses within that coalition from the United States, from tax-friendly jurisdictions in the U.S. Jocelyn Bamford is back with us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Jocelyn, thank you for coming back. There was more you wanted to say about, and I want to get to the issue of, of your co- of your uh, association with the um, uh, coalition with the uh, with with uh, social media, but what did you want to add to our conversation last weekend about the pressures and the challenges that are faced by your members? So the one thing I want um, your listeners to remember when they're voting, if they haven't already, is that a, a coalition between the NDP and the Liberals and the Greens is going to mean there's going to be no more pipelines. And if there's no more pipelines, manufacturing is going to be decimated. Because when you think of all of the pieces and parts that manufacturing makes to supply the resource sector, that's going to be a terrible catastrophe for those two sectors. And we're going to see increased taxes. We're going to see a tax on our savings, especially for our seniors who are going to be faced with an increase in their capital gains. So they've paid taxes. They've invested on their money, they've invested into their retirement, and then they're going to see a capital gains um, and have so, that. So when, we, so, so when we look at what's being done now, and that soil being moved by rail, by truck, um, it's not going to do it, right? Absolutely. And, and when you also think that the projections of the world's uh, fossil fuel fuel usage is going up. And, and why is that? It's because developing countries want to heat their houses and like their homes, and understandably. So you can either buy it from us, which is uh, the cleanest resources in the world, and help the prosperity of our citizens, or it could be bought okay. from Saudi Arabia and Venezuela. Jocelyn, and, and, um, and that will decrease the world's gr- greenhouse gases, not increase them. T- talk to us about the uh, the state of the health of small and medium-sized manufacturing and other businesses, businesses in your coalition across the country. And and please add, because uh, we've talked about this with your members in the past, there are constant offers from the United States, from tax-friendly jurisdictions, for your members to move, right? Absolutely. And our, the vice president of our coalition um, had to make the difficult choice between choosing between his employees that he live, loved, that had worked for him for 20 years, and keeping their business viable. So they moved uh, to the United States. That was a loss of many jobs in, in Richmond Hill. And, and it was a heartbreaking decision. It, it, it's Sophie's choice. You either um, choose to keep your business afloat or you choose to stay here. And that wasn't from outside forces. That was from uh, carbon pricing, electricity pricing, unaffordable energy, and that is what makes forces people to make that decision. And the offers in the states are astounding. Usually when you move, it's years payback, but for him, it was a payback of, of immediate because of all of the incentives that are offered because they just want the jobs. And we, the number one issue for many uh, businesses is competitiveness. We're not competitive. And if you look, and don't take my word for it, do the research yourself, the average manufacturer uh, has a 5% um, margin. So there's not a lot of profit there. And a lot of people just um, employ people and pay their salaries. It's not like we're all drinking champagne for our shoes. And you have to remember that uh, if you look at all businesses in Canada, uh, 92% are 100 people and below. There's lots of businesses, and manufacturing is so capital-intensive that you have to invest a lot into your business so you and have, new equipment. So you have, the coalition and the, your members have concerns, real concerns, 
that you will be uh, given uh, the make of Parliament, if it's, a, if it's one that you fear, that your taxes will become and your fees will become unmanageable and there'll be more people moving. That, that is the absolute reality of the situation. And these are all the unintended consequences of policy that's not well thought through. And it used to be that politicians in the business community would get together and talk about where we wanted to go and how we could do it that would uh, maintain jobs. Increasingly, especially with the left, we see that they come out with policies that aren't well researched, aren't well thought through, just like the, the pharmacare. Sounds wonderful, but there was a great article from Brent Skinner in the National Post that talked about um, national pharmacare is costly and unnecessary. And if people think that their drugs are going to be covered, think of how many aren't covered on the formularies in provinces. So instead of having a national pharmacare, we should fill the gaps where there are in our existing system and not uh, start all over again with this national pharmacare, which we're not going to be able to afford. And every time you have a huge deficit, you're paying interest on that and instead of using it for services. So So, so we're talking about uh, what is happening with your coalition and your businesses. What's going on with, uh, with, with the coalition and your activities on social media? What's happening? So we had a, a 1.2 million reach. We do it all without spending, uh, advertising, or boosting. And we got a note this morning that said that we are now restricted. So we can post on our Facebook page, but it won't appear in any of our 22,000 uh, followers' uh, Facebook uh, news feeds. And that's how we get uh, a lot of reach because people see it, they like it, they, they share it. So if anybody's on, and, and there was no explanation. It was just, you're shut down for seven days starting today. What have you done? Uh, we don't know. There is no, there, you can appeal, but if frequently when you appeal, they don't give you any um, feedback. We're just in, in what we call Facebook jail, where we, we can post, but we can't uh, appear in news feeds. So if people want to hear the message on small, freedom of speech and small to medium-sized business and how important it is to keep our jobs here, please go on to our Facebook page and, and go in and you can share if you come into our uh, Facebook page, but we can't share to any of our followers. So that's you're, you're. CCMBC123. We could use your help to keep the message going and keep free speech in this okay. country. Okay, CCMBC123. 123. You're really worried, huh? I'm very worried because how can this happen? And we have... Uh, maintain the highest integrity in our page. We have somebody that goes through um, every few hours and, and removes any naughty comments. We only post things that are in, in national newspapers, so we can't understand what we would be um, uh, have done to be restricted okay. and not be able to have you're, our followers. I, 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 I also mentioned also meant you're really worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. I am terrified of what's going to happen tomorrow because I think it's going to be the destruction of our of our country. And I think some of the attempts that we've seen is to also um, uh, divide the conservative movement to have people that maybe um, didn't think that Andrew Scheer was conservative enough to have to bleed off that vote mm-hmm. so that they don't vote or don't show up. And if okay. that happens and there is a left conser- uh, left coalition, I think it's the destruction of our country because I do think Jocelyn, that I have to I have to I have to I have to stop you there just because we you know, we have so much time and we've run out of time. This is a very busy day today, the day before the election, but I you do great work. Uh, the businesses of in your coalition they 
employ so many Canadians from coast to coast. And uh, it's good to hear from you and hear your concerns. And, and we we'll do have it you back. for not just for ourselves. We do it really for our employees and their families. I know. I've, I've, heard, I've heard your members say on this program that they their main commitment is to the communities in which they operate because they were born and raised in those communities and the people who work for them matter to them. Right. We want okay. to stay here. Thank you, Jocelyn. Thank you, Roy. Have a great day. All the best to you. Jocelyn Bye. Bamford is the founder and president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. Joining us on the Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network now is an old friend of mine, uh, Nino Colavecchio. He's a former Parti Quebecois candidate, a member of the PQ, a Montreal Radio talk show host, at least some of the time, and uh, former staunch Federalist. How are you? I'm very well. Always a pleasure to speak to an icon of Canadian radio, Mr. Green. Oh, boy, I feel like I'm How being set up. I'm, I'm fine, Nino. How are you? Super. Great to talk to you again. Um, okay, so the Bloc Québécois is polling strongly in Quebec. So this question then, does Quebec sovereignty resonate still with a majority of Quebecers? Is the BQ today in 2019 the same Bloc Québécois of 1995? I, I don't think that's the case. First of all, I, I don't see that this, is, um, this, the, this uh, growth in the Bloc Québécois vote uh, is really related to uh, the separatist movement at all. I think that um, many Quebecers uh, are finding that the, the bloc represents, it will probably better defend the values that they believe in than the other parties uh, in, the, in, the, uh, in the House of Commons. And I think that's what it's about. Um, this is a, the, the bloc is different. This is a new bloc. The situation in Quebec is slightly different. The politics are, uh, have changed. Uh, there's, still, there's still a 40% support for the sovereignty, for sovereignty, but I think... Um, you know, we have a, a, CA, a CAC government that is doing very well in Quebec, and um, the bloc aligned itself with a lot of the same values that the CAC is, um, is, uh, is putting forth, and I think that's resonate. That's what's resonating with the voters. So, Nino, how do you expect it to turn out in Quebec tomorrow? What, do you, what are you expecting? I think that uh, the, the bloc is going to roar back somewhere between 30 and 40 seats wow. uh, and end up with a balance of power situation. Uh, which we've seen before in Canada, by the way. Yes, we, we have. All that, uh, yeah. So um, uh, they were once the official opposition. So, um, you know, I think that I don't think that's a dramatic thing that the rest of Canada should be concerned with. Although the other parties in the last few days, uh, I've really, uh, I've really geared up the uh, the fear mongering. You know, the, a vote for the bloc is a vote for, you know, some people who want to break up the country. A vote for the bloc is. You know, the end of the world. Uh, you know, if Andrew Scheer becomes prime minister, we might as well shut down the country, the liberals are saying. So, you know, but I think people are not falling for this anymore. People understand more than ever uh, some some very strong regional divisions in this country uh, that have nothing to do with language or with separatism, but they have to do with, with lifestyle and what people believe in. So in Canada, a pipeline is an, is an in Quebec, sorry, a pipeline is a non-starter. Uh, in Quebec, Law 21 is uh, is supported by 70% of Quebecers. So a party that the parties have aligned themselves against these core values in some cases, and uh, they're they're going to take the beating in Quebec that they deserve for it. <laughs> so let me ask you this then: um, Do the issues of the rest of Canada? How often do the the issues? that are talked about, written about, debated in the rest of Canada, how often do they um, mirror what's being talked about, uh, written about, and debated in Quebec? 
Oh, always, of course. I mean, we're just as conscious on, we're, we're on environmental issues as the rest of the country. As a matter of fact, we are the greenest province in Canada. Um, you know, so the environment is very much a top-level issue. The economy is, uh, you know, all, all the same topics that affect the rest of Canada affect Quebecers as well, and they're part of the campaign, and they're discussed freely. But there are two in particular that are that that Quebecers hold dear. One of them is the environment, uh, and so therefore, two Quebecers. And I don't want to get into a big discussion on whether this is right or wrong, but two Quebecers, the pipeline uh, is an is an is a non-starter. Uh, two Quebecers, Law 21, which, as you know, uh, prevents people in positions of power. Uh, from um, from uh, exhibiting uh, relig- some religious some form of religious gear garb, okay. Um, Quebec Quebecers believe in this to the point to the key of seventy percent. So when people say, you know, we will uh, we will uh, uh, support, uh, you know, people uh, when Justin Trudeau says in the rest of Canada that you know he's going to uh, appeal to the Supreme Court, and then they're in Quebec says the opposite. This is this is um, modern day politics. What you say out west, we hear in the east as well, right? <laughs> I just want to raise that issue. I'll go back to the issue of the pipelines with you. I've yeah. done two interviews now with the Montreal Economic Institute yeah. on a poll that was done for them by Leger. Yeah. And in that poll, 66% of Quebecers favored oil from Western Canada. First, but they preferred it if they could have a Quebec industry. That would be their primary preference, but given what the reality is now, 66% of Quebecers said oil from Western Canada over any other place. The next was the United States at 7. And then the question was, do you favor pipelines? 45% of Quebecers said yes. The next favorite or the next choice was by truck, and that was 14%, then rail 13%, and by ship 9%. So, know, so pipelines don't seem to be a non-starter with Quebecers uh, if you believe those numbers in that poll. Yeah, I'm always, um, I spent a lot of time, as you know, in the marketing world, advertising world, spent my entire life. I teach it now as well. Um, you know, I, I, I'm, polls that are, that are uh, 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 sort of bought and paid for by, by specific uh, uh, interest groups are always something that I take with a very large grain of salt. Uh, the polls do show, in general, uh, the, the widespread polls show that you know Quebecers do not uh, favor a pipeline, and it's something that is not going to change. But I, that, but I have to tell you then, and you know this was going to come from me. Yeah. Uh, but the but Quebecers do like the idea of the equalization payments. Ah yes, yes, that that always comes from you, right? And I well, I it's true that us. And I tell you that us separatists say, you know, let us separate. And we'll take care of that. We'll do our own, okay? And and in a few years, when Alberta needs equalization payments, then we'll talk about that. <laughs> you're you're treading on very thin ice. Yeah, well, I realize that. Tell me, tell me this again. What's going to happen tomorrow in the province of Quebec? Uh, Bloc Quebecois, and we have about forty-five seconds. Bloc Quebecois, yeah. we'll get how much Quebecois. liberals, how much conservatives, how much. What's it going to look like? It's going to look like, uh, you know, the block is going to go somewhere around 30 to 40 seats. So the rest will split. The conservatives will make no gains here. Uh, the, 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 the NDP is going to take the biggest drop of all. Um, in the Montreal area, the liberals are strong in the writings that are non-francophone majorities. So most of the so-called, um, I don't like to use the term, but some of the, some of the so-called ethnic writings 
they are strong there. They will maintain all their seats in, in the Montreal area. They're, they won't lose a single one, but they won't make any gains. And uh, the, the NDP, uh, the, the bubble of the, um, uh, of, the, of the NDP in Quebec is gone. That's going to, that's going to shift. Okay. So they'll be the biggest losers in Quebec in terms of lo- loss of seats, and the Conservatives will, you know. All right. so, I've always that, enjoyed our conversations and the debates, and, you know, thank you for today. All the time, sir. Take care. Take care. Nino Calavecchio, he uh, was once a very staunch Federalist, now a very staunch Sovereignist, and his view of what's going to happen in the province of Quebec tomorrow. With us now is our good friend and former Premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, Brian Peckford, and we go to the Premier for his thoughts on developments politically and otherwise on a fairly regular basis, and uh, we pay him a lot of money to do this, don't we? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? I'm good. Uh, how are you, Premier? Uh, good. Listening to your program. Very interesting program. You know what? Today feels like an exhausting day. Yeah. And I don't know whether it's because it's the last day of the campaign and it's just been so much has been going on or whether it's just an exhausting day. <laughs> I can't tell. I think it might be a combination of both. Yeah. But, uh, it's just, it feels as though, you know, it's time. It's time for the vote. We've had enough going on. Um, and it's time now for people to make a decision. I don't yeah. think that, again, I don't think that people during the campaign got what they needed, and this is the same story for each political campaign. You don't get what you need to form a dis- uh, an opinion and make a decision on how you're going to vote. The voting should be based on the performance of the last four years. The campaign, maybe it's icing on the cake, maybe it's negligible, but make your decision based on the last four years. Just my sense. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen. If it did, of course, there would be quite likely a conservative majority and a very reduced number of seats for the Liberal Party in the House of Commons. But that's not how the whole thing has uh, has worked out. And as we see right now, uh, the as you mentioned throughout your program, the division in the country, the East is red, the rest is the West is blue, the red has more population and therefore more seats, and therefore tomorrow night or early the next morning we will see a red, quite likely, minority situation with the NDP there chafing at the bit uh, to make up the difference so that uh, there will be a coalition government. That's what it looks like to me. You know, I agree with you, and uh, you wrote a piece uh, called uh, titled The Worst of All Worlds, is this Canada's destiny? It's Beckford42.wordpress.com, where you can go to the Premier's blog. Um, and and uh, I, I'll just go back to a one word that was used by Daryl Bricker, the president of, uh, of Ipsos, and they've done such great polling for Global News throughout the campaign. And uh, Daryl was on the air with us yesterday and today, and I asked him twice, if there is a minority government, and if that minority government is led by Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, with the coalition uh, assistance of the NDP and possibly the Greens. But at the same time, if the Conservatives won more seats than the Liberals, what will the reaction in Western Canada, and particularly Alberta, be? And Darrell's word was wild. No, no question about it. No, and in Saskatchewan, too, and parts of Manitoba. Right. And, and, uh, and rural north. north central and northwestern and northeastern uh, uh, British Columbia as well. Uh, but the, the parliament will have a majority. Uh, you know, uh, I've been watching the 338canada.com um, website 
polling group, uh, Mr. Fournier, and, uh, you know, what he, he's uh, uh, predicting this morning uh, or today is like about 141 for the Liberals and 124 for the Conservatives. Uh, given that you need 170, and if the Liberals get 141, he says that the NDP are going to get about 32 or 33, and that's well within um, the, what um, the uh, you know what, what we're, the NDP will get about 33, and the difference between 141 and 170 is about is 20 20 something, 24 or something. So therefore, the NDP will get sufficient seats to give the uh, Liberals a majority in a coalition government. Where does the bloc fit into all of this, as far as you're concerned? As far as I'm concerned, I've always took the view, and again, it's being confirmed again in this election, there's always a body of uh, voters in Quebec who perceive that the best way they can exercise influence in Ottawa is through another party. And uh, they have become used to it. And if they get a good uh, a leader who they think they can, who's really going to argue and fight on their behalf, uh, they, will, uh, they will vote for them. And this is what's happening right now. There's no question that residue group in, uh, in Quebec, which is quite large, uh, are going to vote for the bloc because they view the bloc as being a wonderful assist for the province of Quebec to have the influence in Ottawa that that's needed and and then they'll split the rest with the liberals and a few others here and there so you, they have the best of all possible worlds i'll give the liberals a fair number of seats but then they'll also uh, offset that by having their own party so that they ensure that they're going to do fine thank you very much premier are you uh are, are you optimistic are you pessimistic are you worried are you hopeful uh of what may start next week, say Tuesday, after the election? Because we know there's a great deal of uh, anxiety, in, uh, in particularly in the, in the Prairie Provinces, but there's anxiety in other parts of the country as well. And I've been asking the question, is this a national unity election? I think it is. Um, and uh, when I spoke with Mr. Bricker, he said, you know, it could be starting next week. A lot of people think it is. What do you say? Well, I think so. The, 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 the situation will be this. Within the, the general population of Alberta and Saskatchewan, parts of BC, like I said, and even in some parts, other parts of Canada, uh, there will be a lot of uh, concern. The, the question will be whether, in fact, uh, the, this will manifest itself into something significant. What will happen in, in Alberta and, and Saskatchewan as it relates to the premiers, as it relates to how they're going to uh, mobilize something here, for example, if the Liberals get the majority of seats, or even if they don't, but they can match with the NDP to have the majority of seats and therefore command the majority in the Parliament, uh, then uh, you, you're into a, a very, very difficult situation. But, I mean, the Atlantic Canada is going to be happy. Uh, Quebec is going to be relatively happy by having the Bloc and the Liberals. And uh, Ontario is going to be, uh, you know, quite likely relatively happy. So you're, you're dealing with a real division, like you say, and a unity issue as it relates to Western Canada, and particularly as it relates to uh, national economic policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, being able to move your oil and gas uh, to the coast and to the east so that we can continue to develop this country and provide the money that's needed to keep our present standard of living. This... I am pessimistic myself yeah. because I, I think 
that the majority of people in urban Canada, and especially eastern urban Canada, where most of the seats are, are, are now progressives, uh, even further to the left than a lot of the liberals, and that uh, they are not prepared, uh, like the, you had the guy you had on from Quebec today, Calvecchio. Yep. I mean, yep. he said yep. there'll never be a pipeline going through Quebec. Well, there you have it. I mean, we're going to have to go down this road quite likely and have some really difficult times for people to really wake up to understand that we must be able to right. do the kinds of things that Alberta says need to be done. Premier, thank you very much. You know, the idea is that you uh, that you uh, spend the money you have. You don't go and borrow money that you don't have. Yes. And if you have resources available to you, for God's sake, use them. Yes, exactly. Thank you very that's much. That's not what's time. happening. And no. I think we're going to have to have some trouble sometimes no. before things may get better. Okay, Premier, good talking to you always. Thank you for the time today. Thank you, too. Premier Brian Peckford, Newfoundland and Labrador. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.